This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Allison Nathan from Goldman Sachs Research, creator and editor of the firm's Top of Mind Report, which focuses on macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. In this episode, we focus on concerns that the accelerating economic recovery from the COVID-19 recession, the largest U.S. fiscal stimulus outside of war times, and the Fed's commitment under its new framework to keep monetary policy very easy until higher inflation is actually sustained, are setting up the U.S. economy to substantially overheat. The likes of former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers and former Chief IMF economist Olivier Blanchard have recently voiced such concerns, arguing these conditions could ignite inflationary pressures similar to the late 1960s and 70s or force the Fed to tighten policy much more quickly than it currently expects to, potentially strangling growth and jeopardizing the still nascent recovery. Partly in response to these concerns, U.S. bond yields have jumped as inflation expectations have risen, and investors have begun to grapple with what the prospect of higher bond yields means for other assets, whether the current overheating worries are warranted, and their implications for bond yields and markets more broadly is top of mind. We first turn to Jan Hatzius, Goldman Sachs' head of global investment research and chief economist, who pushes back on the view that U.S. fiscal support far exceeds what's needed to aid the recovery and will lead to substantial inflationary pressures. Larry Summers and Olivier Blanchard have articulated concerns that we are heading for a period of a sharp rise in inflation. Do you share these concerns? I don't really share the concerns. There's absolutely no question that the stimulus that the economy is seeing in 2021 is unprecedented outside of major wars. But we're also coming out of a deep hole and we have a large output gap to fill in. By our estimates, as of late last year, the US economy was about 6% below potential. And with all of the stimulus that's been passed and including the stimulus that we expect through the infrastructure or longer-term fiscal package, we think that the economy grows about 8% fourth quarter to fourth quarter this year. And that's about six percentage points or so above trend. This is enough to basically fill in the spare capacity that we have and be somewhere around or maybe a little bit above full utilization of resources next year, which would be consistent with inflation eventually rising a bit above 2%, not dramatically above 2%. And I think that's where the Fed wants to be. So when we think about the arguments that Summers and Munchard are making, they clearly seem to believe that the stimulus that's been pushed into the economy is going to leave us in a position to far exceed the output gap. So how do we square your view versus their view? There are two main differences. One is that the official estimates of the output gap are quite a bit smaller than our 6% number. If you take the Congressional Budget Office, which is usually taken as the standard arbiter of the potential output gap, they're at 3% of GDP. That's only half the size. Output gaps are hard to measure, so you have to be humble in terms of your ability to estimate it. But I do think that there are a couple of reasons to believe that CBO is too small. Number one, 
according to CDO, the economy was above potential in the year or two prior to the pandemic. That's pretty hard to square with the fact that inflation was below the Fed's target on average. The other point is that if you look at labor market indicators, employment is still about six percentage points below the pre-pandemic level. Normally, you would think the output gap is bigger than the employment gap. That's the Oaken's law relationship. Now, that relationship is currently not reliable because of the pandemic and the fact that the most disrupted sectors of the economy are very labor intensive. So I think it would be going too far to say that the output gap is actually much bigger than that 6% employment gap. But at the same time, even if you take that into account, it just makes it hard to view a 3% output gap as credible. The other difference is that the Summers Blanchard view is often very focused on 2021. But I think you do need to take into account the fact that a lot of what we're seeing in 2021 is temporary. By our best estimates, the amount of fiscal support to the economy in 2021 is 11% of GDP. That's up from 8% of GDP in fiscal 2020. So it's a significant incremental positive impulse. But then in fiscal 2022, we're currently at 5% of GDP. That's the reason why we think this year's growth is going to be super strong. And next year's growth is still pretty strong in the first half of the year, but don't approximately trend in the second half of the year. So even if we get more growth than we expect, because there's even more front-loaded stimulus from somewhere, whether it's from the private sector or the public sector, if that's not sustained in 2022 and 2023, it's just really hard to be worried about a major inflationary overheating. Another place where Hatzius differs with concerns about an overheated economy is around the argument that multiplier effects will amplify overheating risks. My main issue with the multiplier analysis is that it's a long-run concept. When you say the multiplier is, say, one, that doesn't mean that you assume that every dollar of, say, a tax cut or a transfer payment is spent immediately. Some portion of it is spent immediately. That generates some boost to growth, and you employ more people, you generate more wage income, and then ultimately, two, three years down the road, the impact on output is the same as the original stimulus. But that assumes that that stimulus is permanent. So in that sense, it doesn't really apply to a situation where you only have one year of massive stimulus and then subsequent years at much lower levels of stimulus. So that, I think, is the main point. Then if you dig into the details of some of the spending, there are also some areas where I actually don't think that a lot of it is going to be spent. For example, for state and local aid in the American Rescue Plan, the $350 billion is bigger than what's needed to support state and local governments in the short term. It doesn't mean it's necessarily a bad thing to give state and local governments more money because it allows them to replenish their rainy day funds. I do think that reduces the risk that you're going to have a renewed downturn state and local spending at some point in the future. But you shouldn't really expect that a large percentage of that is going to be spent in the near term. All that said, 
I asked Hansius whether the shift in the Fed's framework towards average inflation targeting increases the risk that the Fed falls behind the curve and we end up with an inflation overshoot or even an inflationary spiral similar to the 1960s and 70s that other observers worry about. Here are his thoughts. Yes, but there's an element of wanting to be a little bit behind the curve. Central banks, including the Fed, have become more tolerant of inflation because they effectively discovered that a 2% inflation target that is perhaps viewed as a little bit more of a ceiling or at least as a symmetric target can deliver average inflation rates that are three or four tenths below the stated target. And so they've rectified that. So while they're still calling for a 2% inflation target, they want to see the clear evidence that inflation is actually there and that you really are at full employment, and it's really time to withdraw stimulus or increase restraint that's going to probably give us higher inflation outcomes over time. But beyond that, the 1960s, 1970s comparison ignores a number of differences. One very important difference is the greater focus on the central role of anchored inflation expectations in keeping inflation low and stable. And I do think we have much better measurement of inflation and inflation expectations. We have inflation surveys. We have inflation indexed government bond markets. We have a lot more tracking of forecasts, not only in the shorter term, but also in the longer term. Of course, you can't be 100% sure that inflation expectations are always going to be anchored. But I don't think that an unanchoring of inflation expectations would sneak up on us the same way that it snuck up on policymakers in the 1960s and 70s. And I think the only way to see a serious de-anchoring would be if monetary policy were not responsive. I would assume that if things are much stronger than what we forecast for growth, employment, and inflation, that there would be a monetary policy consequence. We're expecting tapering in early 22 and the first rate hike in early 2024. But I'm not dug into that view. If the economy looks significantly different in terms of the risk of inflation, I would certainly expect the Fed to respond to that. If you look at our relatively dumbest Fed call, where do you think the balance of risk lies? In terms of the timing, it's probably fairly even, if not even tilted to the later side. There's a limited degree to which the liftoff could come earlier. Given the timing on tapering, the first rate hike could come in the middle of 2023 and maybe even in early 2023. I think that's much less likely the further forward you move, but it's a very limited period. Whereas, of course, if something happened that upset the current very strong recovery and the timeline from $120 billion per month of purchases to tapering, moving through tapering, then hikes relatively soon thereafter, it could delay it by a year, two years, three years. It could delay it by a lot. So in terms of the timing, it's not clear that the risks are to the earlier side, despite the fact that the market is priced for a much earlier liftoff. Where I do think that the risks are tilted to the somewhat more hawkish side is in terms of the level of the funds rate, because it's possible that we see a really strong rebound in inflation and growth, in which case you would probably get much steeper hikes 
maybe starting sometime in 23, but not just going 50 basis points per year, but going 100 basis points per year or maybe even more. Finally, I asked Hatsius about the inflation outlook beyond the U.S. and if there's any reason to be worried about overheating risk elsewhere. If you look at other parts of the world, are there places where there's more inflation risk? No, I think it's a much clearer case in other places. Elsewhere in the world, we have less stimulus and we're starting more deeply in the hole. Fiscal authorities in Europe and Japan and other advanced economies and to a lesser degree in emerging economies, have also provided a lot of support in 2020. But the incremental impulse in 21, 22 is more negative, whereas in the US it's still clearly positive this year. And then the decline in output in many places is quite a bit larger than in the US. If you look at the US, we're down 2.4% for real GDP in Q4 of last year on a year-on-year basis. Europe is down about 5%. UK is down almost 8%. So they're going to be still pretty far away from full utilization and full employment, even in 2022 and maybe even in 2023. So it's really difficult to see any kind of overheating scenario on any reasonable kind of forecasting timeframe. And if I look at this from the perspective of providing policy advice. In the US, I think the amount of support that we're seeing from a macro perspective looks about right. But in Europe, I would say more is better. I've then turned to Dominic Wilson, GS Senior Markets Advisor within Global Investment Research, to discuss what drove the recent repricing in the bond market in the first place. What drove the initial repricing in bond markets? I think at heart that the repricing that we've seen is a reflection of the progress in the recovery coming out of this big hole for months, particularly towards the back end of the last year, the market took its growth expectations up a lot and bond yields really didn't move on the basis of that. Fed anchoring and the economy starting from a point of very deep distress was enough to keep a lid on yields, even though growth was going higher. But as the recoveries come more clearly into focus and we're moving towards the point of real acceleration on the vaccine recovery, we've hit the point where we are creating dry tinder for the bond market to start to reflect the pressures that are coming on the growth and inflation side. And then on top of that, probably the spark that lit that tinder was the fiscal stimulus. We've had historically two very large packages. We forget about December already because next to the March package, it looks small, but it was already a big package. Then another one delivered in March into an environment where, unlike last year, we're not dealing with the threshold of emergency. Investors looked at that mix and said, we've basically left the bond market alone as we've repriced the growth outlook in lots of other places. And now a more normal kind of recovery profile would demand that yields move higher. I then asked Wilson how this moment of bond repricing compares to previous instances, in particular, the taper tantrum of 2013, when Treasury yields spiked after Fed Chair Ben Bernanke indicated the Fed would begin winding down its quantitative easing program. We're still in early days, but we're really only just approaching the lower limit of the real moves we saw in 2013, 15, and 16. 2013 stands out as the one that obviously people worry about, but there are some important differences that are already revealing themselves. I think people forget 2013 was a major policy shock. Bernanke 
surprised the market by early talk of taper, and the market then pulled the whole Fed profile forward. We haven't really seen anything like that. Fed communication error, or at least surprise now, that's a big distinction. And there's other things that were going on at the time in this broader backdrop. We had a growth backdrop that was very supportive, which is like now, but China was slowing down in the background. So EM commodity currencies and the whole China complex got really pummeled over that period. And so without that China slowdown impulse dragging things down today, that space suffered, but it's been much more resilient than it was. But even if the Fed has not surprised the market as it did in 2013, the rise in bond yields is happening as the Federal Reserve continues to maintain a low weight posture in the face of accelerating growth. Investors are keeping a watchful eye on this, Wilson says, as they don't want to be caught flat-footed if the Fed suddenly becomes more cautious. There are two challenges when I look at the Fed's role in this. The first is a reaction function question. The Fed has a new regime and they've promised not to tighten until they can see the whites of the eyes of inflation. But you can believe and worry that the Fed is going to just be more cautious than they've said. They have a track record of tightening a little bit earlier than perhaps they had committed to do. And so the market wants reassurance that they're not going to walk away from that commitment in the face of the economy normalizing. But that is not so much of a problem. They're doing a pretty careful and consistent job of pushing back on that. And they understand the risks. The problem is they can't provide reassurance about the outlook. So the outlook is going to improve rapidly. There's going to be an acceleration in growth. There's going to be temporarily an acceleration in inflation. And then there's going to be a debate over how temporary that is. And even under their own policy and framework, if that growth view is robust enough and inflation is high enough, they're going to hike. That's why they're also being careful not to commit on timing. So you can still worry that they're just not bullish enough on the growth and inflation picture. And if that's true, you're going to want to price a risk that they hike before they think they're going to. You don't get out of that particular source of debate and pressure until we're through the growth and inflation bump. Given all of these considerations, I asked Wilson if the recent performance of other assets made sense and how investors should be positioned from here. Which of the moves in other asset classes post bond repricing have made the most sense to you, which have made the least sense to you? Directionally, the broad set of moves that we've seen make sense. We've seen equities struggle up and down, but they've basically managed to go back to the highs. Cyclical parts of the equity market, banks, parts of the commodity sectors have generally done better. NASDAQ, the growth stock area that's been more sensitive to rates, has done badly. EM struggled a bit. The dollar's had a bit more upward pressure, which is also what you historically find. But the magnitudes aren't always what we would expect. We've seen probably a little bit more pressure on parts of the rate-sensitive space, EM and NASDAQ, than we would have predicted. And I think that is a reflection of the fact that people have long built up overweight positions in these areas. We've been through decades of real rates coming down. And so the market has been heavily invested in areas that benefit from that. You see that most clearly in equities, the combination of strong earnings growth and this secular real rates trend has made the growth areas, the tech areas, long-term secular outperformers, and they're heavily subscribed because of that. And investors liking the fundamental story a lot, and that's being challenged by this rate structure move, which is forcing these rotations towards more conventional cyclical stuff and away from those long duration growth assets. The positioning shifts there amplify the pressure. Where do we see the most value from here? It's a question of time horizon. 
if I look over the next two or three months and the pattern of our forecast, that's where we feel like you're moving into the growth recovery proper. The market's priced a decent amount of that, but probably hasn't fully reflected it. And so if I think about going through that period, watching the market, see these incredibly strong growth numbers and probably react by having to move the growth view up further somewhere towards our own. You want exposure to things that get the benefit of that cyclical tailwind, like cyclical equities and commodities outside of gold. You're going to worry that rates are going to keep nudging up over this period. So you don't want exposure to things that are damaged by higher rates. So that suggests staying away from the growth sensitive NASDAQ and bonds and bond proxies, if not outright shorting them. And internationally, Japan and Europe, the non-US developed markets tend to look better than EM and in some ways better than the US in these environments. The interesting thing for me is if you push the horizon out beyond this period, the profile that we have is very sharp acceleration and then a deceleration beyond that for most of the rest of the year that keeps growth at very high levels, but slowing down. And at that point, it's going to get a lot more interesting whether the market anchors on the levels of growth or whether it does what it often does, which is to anchor on the momentum in growth. At that point, some of these very heavily cyclical trades may lose a bit of their luster in favor of things that have more longevity. If rates rise a lot more or a lot faster, at what point would that disrupt the cyclical bullish view that we have. There's a difference between the two. They're both disruptive, but at different time horizons. What you find is, in general, is that rapid rises in rates, no matter the backdrop, even in pretty positive growth environments, see the market at least temporarily worry about cyclical pricing. And we've seen little pockets of that already. On days where rates move 10 basis points or more, on months when they move 30 basis points or more, it is unlikely that you will escape without a patch of wobbliness in the equity market. But generally what you find is all you need is for the remove to stop. So that is very much more like pace rather than level, that the market so far has not seemed overly troubled by levels of yields. I think the levels will eventually become challenging, but you're still in a zone where we're probably 40 or 50 basis points away from having real yields at a level where they become a bigger obstacle to some of these stories about the relative cheapness of equities. And Wilson believes that the market is perhaps a bit too concerned about overheating and higher bond yields in the near term, and not worried enough about the risk that real rates don't stay low forever. When I talk to people at the moment, they hear the Larry Summers story, they're very focused on the prospect of persistently higher inflation and how to protect portfolios against that. I think that's probably a smaller worry than it sometimes seems in the market because the Fed will just hike more and earlier if that happens. The bit that I think the market's too complacent about in some ways is that we've got used to the fact that the terminal real rate will be down around the kinds of levels we've priced to now. And I think that view is at risk over the longer haul. People perhaps don't appreciate how different this cycle is to the last cycle. We had a cycle in the last decade that had massive private sector deleveraging out of a huge balance sheet problem. Public sector went to austerity within 18 months of recovery. So both private and public sector were withdrawing at the same time. Then we hit 2014, you had a commodity market collapse. China's growth shifted down. Europe had all kinds of problems of their own, and then the UK did. And then the Fed basically started to hike on its own, more or less, with big dollar appreciation coming alongside it. And in that environment, the trade war began. And so 
you look at that environment, say that is a very favorable environment for real yields to come down for them to stay low. You look at the current picture, it doesn't look like that. We've got a private sector that's built up savings in a forced way and is going to want to run them down as the recovery takes off. You've got a public sector that's committed to sort of stay in there for longer. You've got a much more synchronized recovery. You've got a commodity bull market. So some of the things that made us all willing to accept that real rates were just down here forever are starting to change. And the market's waking up to that slowly. But I think if that pushes higher over time, people have structured portfolios in a deep way around the notion that real rates are going to stay at these low levels forever. And that could be challenging. As the economic recovery and the debate about how vulnerable the economy is to overheating risk continues, we'll be closely watching the implications for inflation, bond yields, and for markets more broadly. I'll leave it there for now. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. I'm Allison Nathan. Thanks for listening to Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, and I'll see you next time. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.